Amen. This road trip series is, uh, for me, an attempt to help us understand the overall story. Um, If we're not careful, we'll look at God's story as just this collection of memories that don't really connect or relate. And so we're going to follow God's people literally on the road trips that he sent them on or the consequences forced them to take and how God worked through all of that. And last week we looked at our part of the story. Our part of God's story began not in Bethlehem or in Jerusalem or any other place that we might assume it is if you're vaguely familiar with the story of God. We have this Garden of Eden that was actually in modern-day Iraq. So that's where the story, for our part at least, begins And then after some time in that same area, a man named Abram has an encounter with God, and God says, go to a place that I'll show you. So last week, we looked at his road trip, how he started out in what we know as Iraq, and then moved down to what he knew to be Canaan eventually, uh, what we know as uh, roughly the area of Israel uh, on, on our maps. So he gets there, but then we have another road trip we're going to take today. Because Abraham's family did grow, he eventually did have a child, and that child had a child, and it on down. So we know that Abram's grandson was Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons by four different ladies, and he had one son that was his favorite, and his name was Joseph. And Joseph is who we're going to actually take a look at today. And if you have a Bible, we'll be in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, His story covers a lot of ground. We'll begin here in a few moments in chapter 37. But we have Joseph being Jacob's favorite son. And if I was to compare and contrast father and son there, Abram's grandson Jacob is difficult for me to to pull for, to root for. He's just hard to like. I know he's important. I know his name eventually would be changed to Israel after an encounter with God, and he would be remembered forever. Thousands of years later, we're talking about him now. I know that comparatively, my own life is going to be remembered for about 20 minutes after I'm gone, and then it moves on. I, I'm not saying he's, he's overblown or his influence is, is uh, seemingly more than it was. Like He was a very important guy, but he's hard to like. There's so many moments in his story where you read it and go, I don't know that I would enjoy being around him. I don't know that I would like him. Even his name started out meaning deceiver, and he kind of followed that path. But Joseph... His next to youngest son is the guy that it's impossible not to like. And there's so many things that went against him, and yet he overcame them all. He was hated. He was bullied. He was pushed aside. He was left for dead. He was sold into slavery. He was falsely accused. He was falsely imprisoned. He had so many things happen to him. And in the end, he rose up to be one of the most powerful, successful men in the history of Egypt. And it doesn't make any sense. It should not have happened, but it did. He overcame so much. He's just one of those guys. His story is one that we want to root for. His dad, uh, it's a tough one, but Joseph, definitely. So as I look at Joseph's story, for me, the, the marvel is that after all that he went through, he arrived on the other end victorious and bitter free. Like He was just his own man doing his thing, not carrying around all the stuff he had gone through. He had gone through so much stink, and yet none of it stuck to him. A few weeks ago, I decided as um, 
a leader of my home to make one of those, you know, big gestures of, hey, I'm still a part of this and I'll pull my weight. So I washed my own clothes. It is, it was a very, very, I know, it was impressive, but I decided not to throw my clothes as I normally do in my wife's hamper in her closet and then just ask, when is she going to get to those? I, I thought, I'm going to wash my own clothes. I'm old enough. I, I can do this now. I, I can handle that. So I washed my own clothes. Washed a load, every, the, the colors, uh, all of it together, just washed them to, you know, at least they're clean. So I, I put them in the washer, ran it through the cycle, and then I remembered that evening, oh yeah, I got clothes in the wash. I didn't want to put them in the dryer because my bed is just 20 feet away from the dryer. And those jeans, when they're just kind of clicking, like click, and click all night long, I can't go to sleep with that. And I can close doors and turn on fans and which I do, but it, it just was too much. So I thought, I'm going to leave them in the wash. I'll handle it tomorrow. So next morning I get up, and shockingly, the first thought I had was not, I've got clothes in the wash. That was not my first thought. So I just went on with my day. I got home that afternoon, 4, 4.30 or so, I thought, oh, I've got clothes in the wash. So I went to the wash, I lifted it up, and there was just a different kind of smell in, in the wash. Like it was, they were sweaty when they weren't in. They weren't sweaty anymore. They were just, it's a little sour. Um, and so I smelled it, thought, oh, nothing that a little dryer sheet can't handle, you know, so we put in. So I took them out, put them in the dryer, put two dryer sheets in, turned it on, thought, you know, this is, it's lavender something on the dryer sheet that'll, it'll make it smell good. So clothes were dry. I kind of forgot they were in the dryer. This is why I don't try to help. I am not help, but... So the next morning, I thought, oh, yeah, where are my jeans? I washed them, and I dried them. So I opened up the dryer, grabbed them out, and just put them on while I was standing there in front of the dryer. Like, I just kind of got ready, put a shirt on, also in the dryer, grabbed a few things out, laid them on the bed, which I will make later. But I laid them on the bed and then went off, to, uh, came here to work. And I'm sitting there by myself. I think it was, I was by myself that morning. I was the first one here. I just had my laptop up. I'm sitting in one of those uh, uh, long tables out in the uh, lobby. And I'm typing away, and I just started to, you know, it's, it's kind of a different smell. Like, I know I'm clean. I've got clean clothes on, but I just, so I leaned down and smelled. And, yeah, it's just kind of a, it's a mix of lavender and old milk. It's, it's, it's a strange combination. <laughs> it hasn't caught on. Uh, it's just a strange smell, and it just stayed. So then I thought, well, this wasn't the only thing I pulled out of the dryer. So I tried to get limber, and I lifted my leg up and kind of smelled close to my thigh as I could, my knee, and I thought, oh, jeans are kind of hitting it too. And so, I, so I'm going throughout the morning just with this smell. Uh, Susanna, one of our staff members, was here, and I said, by the way, I think I smell today, but it's clean. It's just, it, they're, they kind of got sour, I think, and then she kind of rolled her eyes and moved away a little bit and could tell I was struggling. I thought, okay. Well, at lunchtime, I did what I normally do, jumped in the truck, and I drove over to the gym that I'm a member of, and I grabbed out my shorts and my shirt, also of the same load, and put those on, and I walked around, and I thought, oh, it's still there. So I, I had this feeling everywhere I went, I needed to stop and go, clean. Clean, like I like explain, like I know you smell me, but I I'm clean. It's just they have a weird milky lab. Like it's it's a weird clean, but I am clean, and that stuff just stayed with me. So now I'm 
working through slowly trying to get my clothes back to a place. And I've got a couple of the t-shirts from that load. And our relationship is touch and go at this point. I'm not quite sure if the shirts are going to make it in, anymore. Like I think I may just have to throw them away. But I, I'm in that relationship with these clothes of fixing it. And some of you have gone through some stuff. I mean stuff. Hard times. And life has just stunk for you. And you've gotten used to it, but the closer you get to other people, I want you to know that they can smell your discouragement, and they can smell your bitterness, and they can smell your anger, and they can smell all of that stuff that you've walked through. Because unlike Joseph, when you went through it, it stayed with you, and it's followed you. And you took care of it, or you said goodbye, or you walked away from that job or that relationship, or you said, I'm sorry, or you knelt down and said, God, forgive me, or whatever the case was. It maybe wasn't your fault, or you said, God, you know, help me to move on, but it stayed with you. And so I want us to take a look at Joseph's life this morning and try to see how he was able to get through all that stuff, get to the end of his life, and not have had it follow him. In other words, he went through the same stink that you and I do. It just didn't stick with him. So we have a few principles from Joseph's life that I want to try to bring out. And he wasn't a teacher, and he didn't say, hear ye, hear ye, here are my uh, principles that I'm following. It's just lived out in his life. And I'm going to try to put a few words to them. And the first one is this. When I trust in God's justice, I don't have to get even. When I'm trusting in God to be the judge, for God to right the wrongs, for God to handle the offenses, I don't have to get even. I don't have to embark on this journey of making sure someone realizes the mistake they made or making it up to someone else or showing someone else up or getting them back for it or making sure they know the pain I went through or they experienced something similar. I don't have to do that if I'm trusting God's justice if I'm trusting him to be the one to take care of the offense. In Genesis chapter 37, verse 5, or verse 3 through 5, it says, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. So Joseph is his dad's favorite. He's got that going for him, but his brothers, and he has 10 that are older than him, and those 10 hate him. And it takes a while to move to hatred. You cannot be a fan of one of your siblings. You can have someone in your family or home that you tolerate, but hatred's a whole different thing. In other words, it there's a traje trajectory that goes on. That's a weird word. I shouldn't have tried to say. But that there's, a, there's a progression that takes place to get to the point of hatred. So he's living his life. He's growing up in this home feeling all the emotions of disdain and frustration and anger and get away from me and I don't want to be around you and you're bothering me to the point where his brothers eventually hated him. Joseph goes through all of that. And as he travels through that, you would think it would stay with him and he would file it away under, one of these days I'm going to be older 
One of these days, I'm going to be bigger. One of these days, I'm going to have means. One of these days, I'm going to have the ability. I'm going to be stronger than some of you, no doubt, even though I'm younger. I'm going to be able to handle you, and you are going to get yours. It would be so obvious if he gets to the end of the story why he would be a bitter, frustrated old man. And yet we find his story to be very different. He didn't live with a chip on his shoulder. And I want to encourage you and remind you that if you are one that likes and takes pride in the chip on your shoulder because it gives you an edge, that chip on your shoulder will eventually become chains on your feet and you will not be free because you will live with this incessant need to get people back, to make sure they feel what you felt, to make sure they don't get ahead of you, to make sure they get what's coming to them, and it's never going to satisfy you. And living with a chip on your shoulder is its kind of cool from a guy's perspective, and I think I can get behind stories or movies or whatever that where someone's just kind of living hard and on edge, and that's, yeah, that sounds fun, songs about it, movies about it, shows about it. But the reality of actually living that way is miserable. And when you live with that chip, that's all that really matters. And eventually it weighs you down, weighs all of us down. And Joseph would have never arisen to the place where God ultimately led him to be if he lived with that chip after what he'd gone through with his brothers. So he's trusting God to handle them. That God, you be judge. Ultimately, you're the one that's offended even more than me because I'm your kid. And they are oppressing and pushing, bullying me down. All those things I'm experiencing, it hurts you just as much as it hurts me. I'm going to let you handle them. I'm going to let you be the judge. I'm not going to move on with it. The second principle, when I trust in God's wisdom, I always have hope. If I'm trusting my wisdom, not necessarily the case. But when I'm trusting in God's wisdom, I always have hope. Doing the right thing did not automatically pay dividends for Joseph. Sometimes we look at it that way. If I do good things, good things happen. If I do bad things, bad things happen. And there's some obvious common sense to that. But for the most part, we assume that we do the right thing. We're always rewarded, and it doesn't happen that way, at least not immediately. And Joseph is trying to do the right thing, and then moment after moment, as you read through his story, he's being pushed out, he's being isolated, he's being marginalized. His own brothers took him out to the edge of town. They threw him in the bottom of a well, a water well, dropped him in there. Another brother said, well, don't leave him here for dead. Let's at least get something for him. We're going to sell him. So they sold him to people who were coming by who were traffickers, and they sell their brother for money. He is taken off to another country. He has a slave owner. The slave owner's wife ultimately accuses him of a sexual assault. He didn't do it, but she's, it's her word against his. So he's thrown into prison for something he didn't do. All of this stuff is happening along the way to Joseph. And it doesn't make any sense. It would be so easy for him at any point along the way to assume this is it for me. This is the end of the story. My, my great-grandfather, Abraham, he had the promise. I was in line to be a part of that. I was going to experience that blessing, but now apparently not. I'm not even in the right country. I'm not with the right people. I haven't seen my family. As far as I know, they all think I'm dead. I don't know if dad even knows I'm, I'm around or what happened to me. I don't know anything. I guess this is it for me. So he's pushed aside. Instead, though, instead of having that hopeless 
view of life, Joseph decides to sit back and allow the story to unfold. And in Genesis chapter 39, verse 1, we read that Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. So Joseph is forced from his home. He's separated from his parents. He's taken to a foreign country. He has everything against him, and yet he continues to thrive. Everywhere he goes, he rises up. Everywhere he goes, people notice something different about him. He's not living bitter. He's doing what he can to excel where he is. And Potiphar recognizes this. Potiphar's wife even recognized that. And that's where the whole uh, allegation came through. It was just a messed up deal. But he continues to rise up. He continues to have everything go against him. And yet somehow God pulls him out. And when he's trusting in God's wisdom, he can say to God, I don't know what's going on. I don't know why all of this is happening to me, but I cannot wait to see what you will do with this. And I would, if you get nothing else to stay in your mind today, if you would just retain one thing, I hope that you would retain this. As you move forward, get in the habit of telling God, I cannot wait to see what you do with this. Most of the time, we just say, why, God? Why would you allow this? Why would you do this? Why would you let this happen to me? Why would she say that? Why would he do that? Why would they be a part of that? Why would I miss out on this? Why, why, why? Instead of saying, God, this makes no sense, but I cannot wait to see what you're going to do with this because I'm trusting that you know what's going on. I'm trusting that you can see more than I can see. I'm trusting that you can see the entire story where I can only see my little part and I cannot wait to see what you do with this. Down the road, Joseph would look back at his own life in a conversation he would have eventually when he met up with his brothers. And in Genesis chapter 45, he said in verse 5, It was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been a famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no plowing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense to all of us. But what we know is that Joseph was thrown out of his country at his brother's hands. He was sold into a different place. And he eventually became one of the most powerful people in the entire nation of Egypt. And his job was to oversee all of the supplies well, there was a famine that was coming to Joseph's own people, and they would be out of food. They were eventually going to have to make their way to Egypt to try to survive. And they're going to get there and not have the means to be able to purchase all that they need to purchase to live off of unless there's someone on the inside. And so God eventually took their own family member, put him on the inside so that his wisdom would save the entire nation, make Egypt continue to prosper, and ultimately save what was left of his family. That never happens if Joseph's not in this place. And Joseph was able to look back and see that God had been at work all along. 
Now, what I want us to be careful with is to be careful with how we say, well, God wanted all this to happen. Because God is not pro-slavery. God is not pro-blackmail. God is not pro-throwing someone in prison when they don't deserve it. He's, that, that's not the case. But God took all of those things in his own power and sovereignty and was able to weave them together to complete his story. We throw around the everything happens for a reason all the time. And if we're not careful, we're conditioning ourselves to believe that every single thing that happens in us and around us is God's perfect plan. And that is not true. God never says that. He doesn't say every single thing that happens is my perfect will. He says everything that happens is ultimately going to be bent towards my plan. I can work through it all. Not everything that happens is good, but God can take everything that does happen and work it for good. And those are two different things. God allows us the freedom to be really, really ignorant. He allows us the freedom to be really, really foolish. But it's never outside of God's ability to work it around and turn it around. I don't think there's any part of Joseph's story when he's thrown into a well or when he's sold off into slavery that God is sitting on his throne saying, yeah, that's my guy. I, I love watching him suffer and struggle and be trafficked. Like, this is the plan. But as God's watching it and his heart's breaking, he's saying, I'm using this for this, and I'll put him here. And ultimately, there's going to be a deliverance, and he's going to be the star of the whole thing. Because I know this guy. I know his heart. I'm going to work through him, and he's going to be faithful even through all the difficulties that he's going to be facing. A very different way of viewing and looking at life, but it protected Joseph and allowed him to be able to be the one that ultimately saved an entire nation. The third thing when I trust God's grace, I can forgive even when I am forgotten. When I'm trusting God's free gift of grace and the extension of mercy and forgiveness that he gives me, when I'm trusting in that, I can still forgive even when I am forgotten. Joseph was put into prison because Potiphar's wife said that he tried something on her. The truth was it was reverse, and it's a strange story where Joseph runs away naked trying to get away from a woman who wants to be with him. Try that for a story. Hey, you'll never guess what happened, honey, at work today. Like, yeah, right. What happened here? Crazy craziness. But he gets thrown into jail, and while he's there, he has other people that he meets along the way, other prisoners. And a couple of the prisoners that came in actually came from the palace. They were thrown in jail, and they, in a way, befriend Joseph because they have dreams, and they need someone to interpret those dreams, and Joseph does that. One is the cupbearer for the king, and one is the baker for the king. They're thrown in. So Joseph interprets their dreams. He tells the cupbearer, you're eventually going to get out of here, and you're going to go back to your place of importance and power. And I just ask one thing. Don't forget me. Remember me when you show up in front of Pharaoh. Let him know there's someone who is falsely imprisoned and needs to get out. I didn't do any of these things. I need your help. We're brought together here. We're building a friendship. Just remember me. And in Genesis chapter 40, verse 20, it says, On the third day of Pharaoh's birthday celebration, he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer, just as Joseph said would happen, to his position so that he would once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he impaled the chief baker, which is what Joseph said would happen as well, just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. 
The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. So the one man that can stand up for Joseph and say, oh, there's a guy in prison. Listen, Pharaoh, I met him. He did this for me. He did this for me. He could probably do something for you. He's not in jail for a right reason. We need to get him out. I promised I would do that. He just forgot. He went back to life and just moved on. Joseph was just another prisoner. Being forgotten does not have to keep us from forgiving someone else. And Joseph knew this. He experienced this. He displayed this. He demonstrated it in his own life. Because eventually, he was remembered. Eventually, he was brought out of prison. And he was restored. And he was restored to the point where he was elevated to be a person of powerful, powerful position. So he's there working with Pharaoh. He's the one in charge of all the supplies. And there's a famine in the land. And God ultimately allows his own family to come to Egypt. They show up looking for food, and the brothers who are there travel up, and they are invited to have a private meeting with Pharaoh's right-hand man, who is Joseph. And they show up, and Joseph looks them in the eye, and they have no idea who he is. If there was a more disappointing moment in the entire story, I, I can't imagine what it would be. Then to have these brothers who did this wrong to you Years and years ago, and now you're seeing them for the first time, and it's obvious they have forgotten you. And you could say, well, they, people change, and they grow up, and you don't recognize. They had just moved on. And that is a sad reality that you and I need to grasp, that people move on. And when they move on, you sitting there holding on to that grudge does no one any good, yourself included. I want to be as encouraging to you as I possibly can. You know I'm not a spitter and a hellfire. And brim, like I, I don't want to be that guy. That's why some of you are here, because you don't get spit on. And so I'm glad you're in this place. But let me be very, very frank with you. Some of you need to stop waiting on an apology and just forgive and let it go. You're waiting on something that you are never going to get. I wish you would I wish today you would go to your car and there are people waiting at your car saying, we need to talk. I need to apologize for what I did to you, for what I said to you, for what I drug you through. I would love for that to happen. But I can see outside, no one is at anyone's car right now. It's not happening. I wish I could say your phone's going to light up in just a moment. You're going to have an I'm sorry. You've been waiting to see this for years. It's probably not going to happen. Maybe it will. But you don't need to go one more day holding on to that. Their forgetfulness does not impact your ability to forgive. You can set them free. And in the process, allow yourself to go free. If Joseph had held on to this, when that meeting happened, he would have laid down the hammer. He would have said words they can't even write in Hebrew because they'd be so offensive. We couldn't even get those out. It would be the biggest bloodbath we had ever read about in the history of God's people. But that's not what happened at all. In fact, after Jacob died in chapter 50, we read in verse 15, Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, and they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs that we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, 
your father left these instructions. I love how they say your dad. Like our, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of God your father. When the message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. They trembled, realizing what he could do to them. And he cried out of joy to see them again and said, don't worry, God was at work all along. And when you did those things to me, as horrible as they were, God turned those around, and now I get to save you. Now we get to turn this whole thing around. Joseph had a lot of stink in his life. He went through a lot of stuff physically and uh, figuratively. When he's at the bottom of the well, there was, a, there was a smell. When he was carried off in slavery, being trafficked in chains, just following along behind the caravan, he stunk. When he's there in the prison being forgotten for months and months and months, he's, he's smelling. And then finally, when life got stinky for everybody else and they came to Egypt, Joseph smelt like hope to them. And for the first time, it was much different. And I don't know all of your stories. I know some, but I don't know all of your stories. But like many of you, I've got poop on my shoes too. And I've, not now, I'm clean now, but, but I've, I've been through it as well. And I know it would have been so easy just to grow to be a bitter old man and allow that thing to stay with me. And the people who were honest with me and close enough to see it could say, Chad, you've got to let that go, man. I smell your resentment. I smell your bitterness. I smell your disappointment, and on and on. But by God's grace and grace alone, God's allowed me to do what many of you have, to be able to say, you know what? I can't affect this. I can't make life not stink, but I can make life not stick. And I'm moving on because God's got bigger plans. He's still in control. And I'm going to trust him in this moment. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for what you brought us through. Thank you for how you have allowed us to endure, to persevere, and not just survive, but how you've taken some of the most regrettable moments and parts of our lives and woven them into a story that is actually coming together to make a difference. You never gave up on us. You never gave up on our part of the story. And God, for the deep, deep hurts and the regrets that are in this room right now, God, I don't want to make light of any of them, but I know you are able, and you're able to get us through them. You're able to repair the fragile marriages that are in this room right now that we can't see are hurting, but you know. You're able to repair the broken relationships between kids and their parents right now. 
On the outside, they look fine to us, but we know on the inside they're broken up and they're rotting away. You can do that. For the missed opportunities, for the resources that were lost along the way, for the poor decisions, for the job losses, for all the close calls, for the tragedies, all of that stuff, God, that is the stink that we live with. And only by trusting in you can we walk through that and not have it follow us around. God, we, as difficult as it is to comprehend, we can still be the scent and fragrance of hope for the people around us if we will let the stuff go and trust you, trust your wisdom, trust your justice, and trust in your grace. God, thank you for what you brought us through. Thank you for being faithful. The same God that brought Joseph through his trials and to the point of success is the same God that can do that for us today. So we want to listen to his wisdom. We want to see it in his life, but most importantly, we want to apply that to our own relationships with Jesus today. And God, for any man and woman in this place who's not a follower of Jesus, I pray that right now they would call out and say, God, save me. I trust in you. I trust in Jesus' sacrifice for my life. And today I'm coming home.